GP Insights, a health cert podcast. Practical advice for busy GPs on how to treat with confidence and grow their practice. Welcome to another episode of the HealthCert GP Insights podcast. Today, we are reviewing a complex case and discussing data from Aesthetic Met's 12-month analysis and aesthetic safety survey. We're joined by Elle Curry, co-founder of Aesthetic Met, Australia's first 24-7 complication and safety support service for all aesthetic practitioners. Thank you for joining us, Elle. No, thank you so much for having us again. Wonderful. Let's jump on in. So AMET recently released their first annual report and also conducted an aesthetic safety survey. Can you share with us your findings and how these results can help improve safety standards in medical aesthetics? Yeah, look, we were, I mean, we've been, we're still fresh. We've only been launched for um, just over a year now, but we were, both Bronwyn and myself were really excited to actually be able to take a bit of a look back retrospectively in terms of not only the data um, that we have in terms of the cases that we've managed, our member data, um, but then we actually also sent out a, an aesthetic safety survey. So essentially, basically like a survey of habits amongst our um, our industry here in Australia. And so, and we were actually really quite surprised at the uptake, like, it, which is so great to, to see, but we thought we'd need to kind of really push it to, to get people to actually respond, um, which wasn't the case. And look, at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is actually highlight and um, real data in terms of complications in aesthetics and trying to help normalise aesthetic complications because really they will happen at some point in every injector's career. Um, and the notion that they won't and that we're immune to them is is not really a rational kind of way to look at um, any kind of healthcare setting and complications. Like there's always, it's an inherent part of anything that we do in healthcare, right? There will always be a complication of some sort. So the aim of what we're trying to do is to highlight, I guess, the statistics that are really more relevant for the practitioner when we're looking at evidence-based statistics, the number is always quite low. And then I think we need to understand that the number is low purely on the amount of, and it's based on the amount of, say, syringes or units that we do or treatments that we perform. Now, in a clinical setting, Roman and I kind of, we've been in a, like thousands of different clinical settings, obviously, with our experience, but what we've kind of noticed is that practitioners, you're treating day in and day out and you're seeing your patients. And whilst you might have an awareness as to how much perhaps you're spending with a pharmaceutical company when you're purchasing products, you're probably still not really cross-correlating the statistics of the adverse events with how many filler syringes you're doing. And so really what's more relevant is how many of us out there as practitioners are experiencing adverse events. And what we sort of found from and our annual report actually and our safety survey were, were quite aligned in their findings right which was also quite a good um, snapshot for us to actually be able to correlate both of our data um, and what we found is really in terms of for an example vascular occlusion it's about 26 percent of practitioners that completed the survey have experienced vascular occlusion and it's an interesting one because there seems to be a lot of unnecessary fear around an occlusion because it really is something that can be managed quite swiftly, providing it's recognised. And yes, there can be complex occlusions and there can be some horrific ones, obviously that lead to you know, things like vision loss and um, or necrosis. The, the rate of necrosis actually from the safety survey results was actually only 
right? So there's quite a lot of occlusions that are happening that are being managed quite well. And I think that that's really what we're trying to actually highlight here is that we need to sort of decrease the fear around adverse events so that people are not scared to act and not scared to recognise the signs or symptoms of these. And I think another really important finding that we had as well was looking at inflammatory reactions and inflammatory nodules. Now, really, in terms of our member data, we looked at inflammatory nodules, there was about 26, 27%. It's very similar, like an even split between a BO and, and a nodule, inflammatory nodule. But when we actually looked at the safety survey, we actually had 36.6% of people had a delayed onset nodule. But then on top of that, which was really kind of quite significant, when we looked at how many people had actually experienced moderate to severe, I had patients obviously that had experienced moderate to severe swelling within 48 hours after a treatment, there was a whopping 45.1% of them had experienced that with their patients. And so I think with inflammatory reactions, I think that there is, there needs to be a little bit more awareness about what inflammatory reactions are. I think a lot of people are very focused on nodular reactions and not really aware necessarily about how to manage and how to recognise in terms of what is normal swelling and what is abnormal swelling as well after a procedure. So yeah, look, we're, we're really excited about it. We're going to run more surveys um, throughout, you know, even this coming year, just because we've kind of, yeah, we've really sort of seen a lot of patterns. Um, and similarly, actually, with hyaluronidase, it was quite interesting because we, we asked about the confidence levels of practitioners with hyaluronidase, and there was actually quite a high confidence rate in terms of being able to reconstitute it, which was great at first when we looked at it. But then when we actually broke it down, we realised that only half of the practitioners were actually adding lignocaine to it, which... Yes, there is limited data to support the use of lignocaine, and, and that is something that is being worked on in the background. However, a lot of the literature and a lot of practitioners and experienced practitioners and consensus panels do recommend the addition of lignocaine. Um, and the reason being is because pain is most definitely a deterrent for continuous dissolving when it's needed. So if we don't add lignocaine and we're only dissolving with saline, the patient may actually end up refusing any further dissolving when they actually need it. So it's a really important finding that we've sort of found from that as well, that we need to obviously try and educate um, practitioners out there. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing those insights. Um, and congratulations on your one year anniversary. For no, thank you. Thank so you. <laughs> Now, um, with respect to filler, you mentioned that vascular occlusion and inflammatory reactions are the most common adverse events. On the face, which region of the face poses the highest risk for vascular occlusions and why? Yeah, so again, a really, really interesting question. Um, and I think there is, without a doubt, the highest risk of vascular occlusion, and that goes with evidence and reports from the FDA kind of confirming that is lips and perioral region. So, which again is also very interesting considering it's one of the first areas that we sort of train, right? Um, and again, when you compound that with the limited training there is with regards to and the limited awareness of hyaluronidase, dilutions, correct dilutions, no real formalised structured pathway for hyaluronidase training in aesthetics because it's off-label so none of the pharma pharmaceutical companies are able to train or even mention the word to be honest 
that poses a big safety risk, right? And so I think it's really important for any new practitioners that are looking to get into the industry. And again, it's okay. Vascular occlusions are okay and they will happen. And particularly if you're doing high volumes of lips in lip and perioral areas, it absolutely will happen. But you just need to be prepared and you just need to know. You need to understand what hyaluronidase is, what the ideal dilutions are and for different indications. So whether it be just lumps and bumps or for vascular occlusion or then for blindness, but you need to know and you need to have had some sort of practice or training with how to reconstitute hyaluronidase is absolute paramount. No matter where you're starting in your injecting career, if you're injecting lips, it needs to be prioritised. Thank you. Now, inflammatory reactions following filler treatments have been receiving more attention over recent years, with particular attention during the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you explain to us what are inflammatory reactions and why it is important for practitioners to be educated on these? Yeah, sure. I think from kind of experience, I suppose, in having, you know, done training and also just, you know, since we've obviously launched AMED, I think there is a lack of, um, I don't know if it's awareness or, or a lack of education, um, maybe a combination of, of both in terms of the immune reactions and the, the, the natural immune responses to the treatments that we're kind of implementing, right? I think obviously the pandemic highlighted a number of things. Obviously, we've never had a pandemic ever um, since these injectables have been performed. And so we really don't know um, what effect, I suppose, COVID-19 has had on overall filler reactions and, and immune-mediated responses to these implants, basically. Um, but I think with or without COVID or any kind of um, pandemic, we need to understand that every single time we inject a medicine or a device into somebody's face, we are going to elicit an immune response. Now, there's a lot of confusion, I think, sometimes amongst practitioners about different types of immune-mediated reactions. So, for example, with swelling, you know, moderate to severe swelling, it depends on the onset and the time. So, obviously, if it's immediately after or whilst they're there in the treatment couch, you know, the practitioner needs to make sure that they're assessing for signs of anaphylaxis or angioedema or anything like that, right? And so, absolutely paramount, you must have an EpiPen or adrenaline on site at all times with any of these treatments. However, a lot of it, that really is kind of like a type one IgE mediated response. So delayed hypersensitivity reactions are more of a type four T cell mediated responses. And what we often see, whether it be in forums or in terms of just general discussions when looking at, um, I suppose, treatment modalities for that, there are, there seems to be, sometimes there seems to be a little bit of complacency amongst practitioners, particularly if it's a lip filler treatment, like we all expect more swelling, there's just different tissue there. But there seems to be a little bit of sometimes complacency as to assessment and making sure that, you know, we, we really do need to treat all elements of swelling. If the patient has called us, then they're concerned, they need to have a review and we need to rule out any kind of vascular compromise for number one right, is that actually can be, swelling can be also a sign of um, an occlusion. So we need to obviously monitor the capillary refill to that area. And if that's not the case, we need to obviously be able to see firsthand what 
the swelling is and have a baseline of photographs of prior, immediately post and that kind of thing. So we can actually measure the degree of the swelling. A lot of people tend to find that, you know, say 24 hours afterwards, they're recommending if the swelling is kind of a little bit more delayed, they're recommending anti antihistamines and often that won't work because it is a type 4 response and that's usually not the case, although in some of the literature it's reported that it can sometimes have an effect. But often those patients can actually need steroids as well just to actually calm down the immune response. Now, obviously, if that is the case, steroids are in their own right, a medication that should also be respected. Um, and that really does come down to making sure that there's the, the prescribing doctor or nurse practitioner um, is also involved in that and making sure that they're treating things accordingly. Sometimes those reactions will actually just settle down on their own. And so it may actually be a case that the patient may have taken some antihistamines when it really wasn't the antihistamine, it may have just self-resolved on its own. So we don't really know, but I think it's really important for practitioners to respect the patient's natural immune response particularly in terms of risk mitigation strategies. So when we're looking at treating people with autoimmune conditions, their immune system is, by their natural state, it's more heightened than the average person. So again, it just kind of reiterates as to why whenever we're doing these treatments, the informed consent. So personally, every, everyone with an autoimmune condition, I will tell them that they are at a higher risk of inflammatory reactions. And I will ask more questions about perhaps other hypersensitivity reactions. Have they had anything like that before in the past? If they've had pre-treatments or are they allergic to anything else they could possibly think of, not just medicines, um, just to kind of gauge a bit of a, an idea. Um, and the same goes for obviously if they've had any recent illness, any recent treatments like dental treatments, invasive dental treatments that could, you know, kind of spark some sort of an infective process. And, you know, at the end of the day, all of those steps and all of those risk mitigation you know, strategies and questions that we are implementing in a consultation, whilst they can't absolutely exclude the fact that you will get an inflammatory reaction, you know, absolutely, that may still happen. The most important thing is that you've minimised your chances as much as possible, because in a lot of those cases, you might find that you might delay treatment, you know, and you'll never really know, did that prevent an adverse event? But it's just, if, if we use that as the standard to make sure that we're all talking the same talk and that consistency with consultation and informing the patient prior to of their personal risk of inflammatory actions, I think is really important and key to, to lowering our risk. Absolutely. Those are some important, very practical tips that you just shared. So thank you <laughs> for that. Now, you have managed a number of complex cases over the last year. Can you yes. share with us a standout case and why it was complex to manage? Yeah, look, I think in terms of cases, you know, the whole, the whole purpose of AMET, yes, absolutely, we're here for complication management and support. That's actually absolutely one part of the business. But the other part is empowering practitioners through education and giving them access to these protocols and being able to actually manage cases themselves. And so... You know, we'd like to think that hopefully on the back end there are adverse events that people haven't spoken to us and haven't needed to call because perhaps they've they've got the protocols there and they've, they've successfully managed it. But naturally, obviously, we do get we still do get a number of calls, and I think it's also important to highlight kind of what makes a case complex, right? It's you know, there's there's a multitude of factors there that yes, some of them we can't control, like, you know, the patient's immune reactions or perhaps what the patient does after a treatment, those sorts of things. But 
there's a number of things that we can control, right? That comes down to us most likely being proactive with our education and proactive with certain things that we need to always have on hand, I think, within a clinical setting and how to recognise adverse events and, and when we should escalate in that time frame. So I think one of, the, one of the biggest things that we see is time playing a bit of a problem. So there's always a bit of a delay in terms of the instigating with the treatment. Um, but in particular, this, this case was really um, very interesting and really because it involved an experienced practitioner had been injecting for a long time. It was down here in Victoria. Um, they had done, you know, a number of different areas and, and predominantly the, the focus was um, nasolabial piriform fossa, so deep onto bone, slum injection, all of what you're, you're supposed to be doing, I guess, in terms of anatomically for that region. And then also did some tear trough, but they used a 25-gauge cannula to the tear trough as well. Um, so again, you know, not saying that any particular one is more safe than the other, or there's no such thing in our, in our world as being a safe region or a safe technique. Um, but yeah, I, I think in terms of the way that it's sort of presented, and it's hard to know because we're obviously not there immediately, but certainly in terms of the, you know, um, presentation was, was different in terms of the discoloration. So, was certainly some blanching and it was predominantly erythematous. So it wasn't this typical levito pattern that you would see or this mottling that you would see. Um, and considering the patient actually didn't have any hyaluronidase initially and it was 24 hours after, you would expect to have seen very much more cyanosis. But in saying that, it was very clear that the discoloration was in line with the vascularity of that area. Right, so the entire mid-face was red, the entire area under the tear trough, and actually a little bit into the glabella. So, you know, we were looking at the pictures going, okay, something is seriously obviously wrong. The injector had two vials of phylase, did administer the hyaluronidase. Now, from memory, I don't think it was kind of what we ideally want in terms of dilutions. I don't think it was quite as concentrated as what we would have liked. But for the surface area that was affected, when you're looking at papers like the De Lorenzi paper in 2017, it talks about cosmetic units being equivalent to certain dosages of hyaluronidase, two, two vials was not enough for that. Um, and so, yeah, there wasn't really any kind of um, response or improvement. And so obviously then the, um, so the, the practitioner wasn't actually a member, they called us. We tend to find that that tends to be the case. People are not being proactive, they're calling us when an adverse event happens, which is something I would like to obviously shift this year. Um, but in any case, look, we referred, we're, we're kind of very lucky actually down here to have um, some fantastic experts that are very familiar with, with, I suppose, imaging in terms of, and are very knowledgeable in aesthetics as well. So yeah, this we referred to an expert, Dr. Stevania Roberts, who's obviously very well known and is a trainer as well. Um, and she was incredible. So she actually spent two hours it took for her to find the occlusion under ultrasound. So you can imagine even if we'd had more vials of hyalase, we would have been focusing probably on this large surface area. However, where the occlusion ended up being found was actually in the supratrochlea, so pretty much in the glabella, um, which, yeah, was kind of like a near, could have possibly ended up being, you know, responsible for some vision loss or alteration in the vision. So 
we were, yeah, very, very lucky, I guess, that it was a patient was in Victoria. We do have some radiologists and things like that in other states, and we're working on our network for each individual state. But I think what practitioners probably aren't aware of is that even experienced radiologists will find it difficult to isolate facial vessels because of they are so small. Their diameter is so small. And so it takes a long time and a lot of active investment into the aesthetic space and wanting to understand facial vasculature for even a radiologist or a sonographer to actually be able to find these vessels. So, um, yeah, we're working. We're working on it. We're trying to obviously help, you know, have at least a connection to be able to manage complex VOs like this um, that aren't responding to hyaluronidase because that really is, I guess, the next step up the end of the protocol. It's not responding that's that's our only other option um but yeah no look in the patient medical recovery again and yeah it was it was absolutely a-okay but yeah it was it was a very interesting one given that the injector was experienced and essentially probably did all the right things right like mm. um so it's just yeah it's just that management exactly and this example with an experienced an injector just shows the need um, for your service in the industry yes. as well as yeah. others no absolutely we'd, we'd really love people to kind of like don't wait until it happens I mean mm. it's just that's not the idea the idea is to really you know we've got a whole platform there dedicated that to funneling the latest in aesthetic safety research and the latest in terms of the protocols and trying to keep everything consistent because we know firsthand the dilutions and the the protocols that people are using uh, a lot of them are outdated and they really are and and we've seen a lot of barriers with that and so I think yeah it's just really important for everyone to be you know nearly we're, we're trying to get people kind of excited <laughs> about safety and complications and I know it's a tough sell um when particularly we've been sort of you know had the had all these horror stories at all these conferences but um I think at the end of the day like we, we are super passionate about this I mean you wouldn't do you wouldn't do AMET unless you were passionate to be honest um but look we're, we're hoping to kind of you know inspire other people to get even as, as passionate as us about it um because a lot of yeah like I said a lot of them have great outcomes um, and there really shouldn't be any any situation where a patient's outcome is affected by mismanagement or, or a lack of education or a lack of awareness. So it's just we've just all got to support each other in that time of need, really. Mm, absolutely. So if practitioners want to learn more from the annual report, the Aesthetic Safety Survey, and make use of the great and valuable service that AMET provides, how can they find out more and join? Yeah, sure. So it's just easiest is just to actually join at the website, which is www.aestheticmet.com. And yeah, it's just, you can check out what's involved and um, yeah, hopefully you, you guys see some value in joining and, and helping support our little safety movement. Perfect. Thank you again, Elle. We really yeah, appreciate so it. No, thank you so much again for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe so you can get updates whenever we post more. And please share it with others. And for more info, please go to helpsert.com.